This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Karina Bader, thanks very much for making a Talk Your Book debut. Uh, I know we'll get into your stock pick in a minute, but if you could just start with giving us a, a description of Acorn Capital and, and how you guys look to invest. Thanks for having me on the show, Chris. Um, Acorn Capital was founded over 20 years ago as a small boutique fund manager specialising in investing in emerging companies. Now that mainly means outside the ASX 250 and they tend to be companies that are small and we expect them to grow. Um, The company itself has over 10 uh, sector specialists with an average of 15 years of experience and it's one of the best resourced and most experienced fund managers in the microcap space. Um, In particular, at Acorn Capital, we've always invested in resources and energy. Uh, Acorn's always had a sector specialist dedicated to those sectors, and they've always been technical specialists with geological background. Um, So I've got over 20 years' experience. Rick, who's the current portfolio manager, has over 25, and the prior uh, portfolio manager, Dave Ransom, which some of your viewers may know, has, um, well, he would have had over 35, 40 years' experience. And so that experience from your end is in, in the actual mining industry, is that right? As a geologist? Yes, that's correct. Yes. That's a pretty unique view when you compare it to a lot of other farmers, how they look at, at deal flow, I'd imagine. That's, yeah, absolutely correct. And as I mentioned, those emerging companies generally don't have revenue. And so what we see is our point of difference is we can look at the rocks, we can talk to the geologists on site. One of the key things we spend a lot of time on is looking at the resources, the drill holes, trying to make an assessment around the rocks, because ultimately the asset's only ever as good as the rocks that are in the ground and you need to have a geological background to really unpick that. And what stock did you want to talk us through today? So today we're going to talk about a little junior rare earth explorer called Australian Rare Earths. Now we invested in that at an unlisted stage back in late 2020 and what's particularly unique about Australian Rare Earths and their Copamara asset is that it was identified as an ionic clay deposit. Now traditionally or Historically, those kind of deposits have only ever been found in China. Um, And so to find one here in Australia in a first world jurisdiction in a commodity that is undersupplied, we really thought that that was a great opportunity for Acorn and is significantly why we invested at such an early stage in that company. And maybe contrast for us the difference between ionic deposit and a hard rock deposit in in rare earths and why perhaps the ionic ones were, were more appealing to you. Great question. So in rare earths, there are generally three types of deposits where you can extract your rare earth elements. Interestingly, there are 17 different rare earth elements, but only four of them are what we'd call economic. And they tend to be the ones that the Western world governments have actually applied and and stated as critical minerals and put them on a critical minerals list. Um, Now, there are ionic clay deposits, which we've just spoke about. There are what's called bastonite deposits, and then there's monazite deposits. Now, the bastonite and the monazite deposits tend to be more expensive to develop, uh, more technically challenging, and take a longer uh, period of time to get into development. Particularly monazite deposits, which tend to be what's the standard produced by a company, say, Linus, um, that's currently in production. They have a mono- uh, the, one of the waste products of processing monazite to extract the rare earth is uranium and thorium, and that can... Con- tribute to material handling issues down the track. Uh, Bastonite deposits 
uh, don't so much have the uranium thorium issue, but what they tend to do is those deposits have the cerium and lanthanum rare earths, which are not of high value, tend to be the lower value products. However, the, um, so it's really important when you look at a rare earth company that you're looking to invest in, the percentage of those four critical elements in the deposit, and they are neodymium, praseodymium, they're tongue twisters, um, dysprosium and terbium. And they're the ones that actually uh, have a high value and you'll get a good basket price when you sell your product. And in particular, uh, Australian rare earths, 25% of the assemblage is those four critical minerals. Other deposits um, may not have such a high percentage of those particular four elements. So that's really what you need to look out for. So I wouldn't mind coming back to your journey into this stock and that journey from being private to public. But maybe before we get to that, just maybe what's your top-down view for rare earths as a commodity? You've sort of touched on what the commodity's used for, but I know China control a huge amount of the supply. Um, how are you viewing that top-down dynamic at the minute for the, the rare earths industry? So I mentioned before that ionic clay deposits have traditionally only ever been discovered um, and exploited in China. And actually, the reason that China tends to dominate the supply chain today is because they had these ionic clay deposits. And those ionic clay deposits are at surface, they're free dig, they're low capital to get into production, quick to market, and that gave China a significant advantage over the rest of the world. And they still dominate today. As you said, over 90% of production comes out of China today. So the reason we like rare earths in particular is both a geopolitical lens, but also a supply deficit lens. Um, when you look at the transition to a renewable economy, and we're starting to see this massive build-up in momentum to achieve the decarbonisation uh, targets by 2030, if you look at how we are going to achieve that as a society and the increased demand in wind turbines in particular to generate that uh, energy, and then in electric vehicles to also reduce those emissions to, in carbon dioxide. Those two features require rare earths, in particular the wind turbines. So for example, uh, a wind turbine requires about 600 kilograms of neodymium and praseodymium. And if you drive out to Western Victoria towards Stall, you'll see that those wind farms, that's about the size of the, the 600 kilograms required for those wind farms. But if you're building out at the North Sea or potentially off the coast of Victoria soon, you need three times the size of those wind turbines, which requires three times as much of the neodymium praseum. And the reality is the market's currently undersupplied today. It takes decades for these projects to get into production. I just can't see us meeting that need by 2030, given the increased demand just for wind turbines. And then we talk about electric vehicles and the, the take up that we've seen in the last two years of those. Uh, electric vehicles particularly use uh, rare earths and magnets because it makes the cars lighter. And obviously that feeds into the range that you can get in your electric vehicles, which is clearly an important selling point of electric vehicles. Coming to this as a, originally when it was unlisted and, and obviously seeing a material markup in the valuation of becoming a, a public listed entity, uh, am I right in saying, you know, a lot of private investors might have a high conviction bed and because they don't have monthly mandates or as much liquidity requirements as funds, they're able to hold through longer cycles and funds where, you know, they maybe need to be more aware of liquidity of the investments they're in and they're often shaving positions that they still like just because either liquidity becomes a concern or it's become an outsize for their portfolio. How has that sort of been tackled by you in, in this investment where I assume it started off quite small and has grown to a, a material position? Absolutely. So uh, I probably should have mentioned before Acorn Capital is a crossover fund. All of our funds do both unlisted and listed. However, we do cap those unlisted at about 30% of overall funds under management. 
Having said that... Sorry to interrupt. And do those unlisted positions need to be have a liquidity event in a certain time period? We have a, a, a two to three year view. Yeah. So we would anticipate that there's a liquidity event within three years. Uh, but it could be a trade sale. It doesn't have to list on the ASX. That's our preference. But it doesn't have to. And in, in fact, we've had companies list uh, elsewhere. But it needs to provide an opportunity for us to have that liquidity. Absolutely. That's a prerequisite. And we will ensure that we have that upfront. So we never would have invested in AR3 as an unlisted if their intention was never to list it. We would never have done that. Um, so in terms of the AR3 investment, it was a tiny investment. In fact, I'd say that was the smallest investment Acorn's ever made at the unlisted stage. It was around a $2.5 million valuation. It was a very small amount of money. Wow, it's almost a seed deal. Yes. Or a shell deal, sorry. It was That's almost a And literally, um, you know, it was a couple of tenements. It was founded by Rick Popjay. You'll fit right in in this yeah. office going into <laughs> the million EVs. We don't, like I said, <laughs> it was the smallest we've ever done. It's not our usual yeah. um, MO. But... Because our view around resources and rare earths in particular, we felt that this was a really unique asset. We put that money in the seed and it was, there was risk because at that stage we still didn't know that it was going to be an ionic clay. The um, Rick Pobjoy had worked in mineral sands previously in Victoria, had identified the tenements and the um, assay results and worked out that he thought this was an ionic clay, but it still had to go for metallurgical testing to prove that. So the seed funds were basically uh, to get them through a drill program, get the samples, send it to the lab, and then establish that it was ionic clays. So when you talk about that uplift in the value from the unlisted to the IPO mid last year, by the time it came to IPO, we knew it was an ionic clay. We had a small resource on that asset, the yellow tail and the um, red tail that you mentioned. And so the, it IPO'd with about a $25 million valuation, which in a comparable level on the ASX is a very low valuation. Um, as you've also mentioned, we held on to that through that process. We contributed to the IPO and we just contributed most recently to the latest capital raise. But it is still a, a fairly small position for the company overall. Um, we, we can hold companies that have over a billion dollars in market cap. So a $25 million asset was a very small um, percentage of our funds. So from a liquidity point of view, as from a farm level, irrelevant. It did not have any significant impact. Clearly from an AR3 Australian Rare Earths um, liquidity of its register, that is where you, you might um, come into issues if you try to divest. And you've mentioned before the, the different jurisdictions. Like I've been an investor in IXR, I'm now out of the position, and they've got a looks like a great deposit in, yep. in Uganda. Yeah, um, but it's in Uganda. You know, how do you yes. sort of handicap jurisdictions when you've got you know Canadian, US, um, Australian jurisdictions compared to ones where there's the high potential for for unpredictability? Look, it's uh, we have an actual uh, quantitative process where we actually take account of sovereign risk. So we have a, a mathematical formula that we use um, based on the sort of Fraser Institute uh, jurisdictional um, issues. We factor that into our original uh, valuation of the company. However, in addition, um, so Acorn is, is an equity investor. We tend to be high risk. We will invest in um, more marginal jurisdictions. There are some jurisdictions just we won't touch. Um, Which ones won't you touch, if you don't mind asking? Well, I wouldn't go into Russia. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> South Africa? South Africa, um, the Stans. Congo. The Congo. 
we've historically Acorn has invested Congress in coal. Congress got some great deposits, but it's exactly <laughs> so. If they're not yours. And part of that is when you look at the market, you can have a fantastic tier one asset in the Congo, but the market's never going to give you full value no. for that. It's going to trade like we talked about thermal coal assets with a discount. Now, I can't tell you exactly what that discount would be, but at least it's going to be a 50%, let's assume. Yeah. Um, and so the question is, so are you ever going to get, and knowing how hard it is to get any asset into production anywhere globally these days, are you really going to invest your money and follow your money in a jurisdiction where you could have spent so much money and time uh, and at some point something happens, um, and there's a company just recently going through exactly that uh, in the Congo, incidentally, and to have lost that, essentially lost that investment. What about Spain? I've heard there's one area of Spain that, that, that a lot of investors don't mind, but the rest of it, they reckon it's just well, as Europe bad as... Europe generally has been Africa. problematic for Australians. Yeah. Uh, there's been a number of Australians over the decades I've been at Acorn Capital uh, who have tried to invest in Spain, and some of them are still standing, and it is now starting to look like... Uh, it is opening up. Okay. You've had Highfield get their approvals through. You've seen um, there is another company in Berkeley Spain. Berkeley and Asia, they've been stuck, haven't they? Yeah, they've been stuck. And because it's uranium... Yeah. It's a nicely deposit too. Yeah. and it, Well, that's right. And it's previously mined. So you're, coming, you're not coming from a standstill, right? You're yeah. actually coming in at a sort of relatively developed stage with just have to put it into production. So you've not even got any risks to an extent around that. But uh, on the ASX, there's plenty of other opportunities in uranium, so you don't have to take on that risk if you don't choose yeah. to. And that's the beauty of the ASX. We've got a really deep resource cohort to invest in, over 600 stocks outside the top 100, um, but more than a $10 million market cap. If you include the ones that are sub 10 million, you could do almost double that number. Uh, and they are across all commodities and all stages of development. And that's the beauty of that sector which we're investing in. We can, uh, and that's how we run the portfolio as well. I digress a little bit, but um, it's commodity spread plus stage of development spread. And then within that, we risk manage the weight according to a lot of the factors that you've talked about. So if you see a fantastic asset in a jurisdiction that you don't like, you just won't hold it at the full weight that you would have if it yeah. was located in a different jurisdiction, if you really felt that that was the only way to get exposure to such an excellent asset. But the reality is if you look across the ASX, you can probably get a similar exposure somewhere else. I'll come back to AR3 in a second. I know I've, I've, I've distracted you from the focus <laughs> here, but, but just coming back to that jurisdictional risk, I know you've got a quantitative process now, but qualitatively, intuitively, I assume, does it feel that those risks are only going to get bigger over the next five years as, you know, the hunger that a lot of these countries are going to feel, let alone all the other uh, un unstable risks look like they're going to rear their head. I, I think that's really quite true. Since I started at ACORN in 2009, I would say the jurisdictional risk generally has increased. And I, obviously what's happened in the last few months with Russia invading Ukraine, you can clearly see that that geopolitical risk has gone up even more. Um, can you put a number on it? No, but what you can do, obviously, is continue to look for other opportunities. But it is, without a doubt, and it also, it's not just jurisdictional risk in terms of, a, say, Russia. Well, clearly, you're not going to go invest in Russia for obvious reasons. But there are permitting risks. And this is one of the key um, features of the junior resources space. Uh, you can find and discover an asset, great, but you've actually then got to move that asset from being a discovery and a, and a hole, a potential hole in the ground into actual production. And the reality is you have to raise capital to do that, whether it's through debt or equity or strategic investors, off-takers. There are a number of ways you can do it. But that process has taken 
longer and longer and longer. And if you look at any commodity now, except for perhaps gold, it is generally a 10-year period of time from discovery through to production for any asset. So if you make a discovery today, on average, it's going to take you 10 years to generate any cash flow from that asset. And that is across the board, whether you're in WA, whether you're in Northern America, South America, Africa. And, and that's a working capital issue. And that's the issue with junior explorers. Make the great discovery. That's fantastic. We're all happy. Everyone's making some money. But now all of a sudden, oh, I need to do my engineering studies. I need to put all my environmental permitting issues in place. I need to talk to the government. I need to work with the landholders. And a lot of those features are outside control of the company in terms of the timeline. And so you've got to keep funding the business through that stage to the point where you've actually got what we call a DFS, a Definitive Feasibility Study, and you're ready to make that financial investment decision, or FID. Push the button, we go raise the money, we go build this project. That's a really long time frame. And getting back to AR3's project, in, in terms of the drilling at Kupamara, maybe talk us through what the results you're seeing there, maybe what's their mineral resource estimate up to, and where does it need to get to for you to go, right, this is going to be a, a proper, sustainable, long-term mine? Look, it's about a 15 million tonne resource at the moment with about 700 ppm, uh, which is in, this, in the rarer space is considered low grade, but then you've got to come back to what I mentioned earlier about ionic clay deposits. The very nature of those deposits are that they are lower grade than, say, a Mount Weld at Linus, which has a 14% um, rare earth content. However, because it's at surface, it's within three metres of surface, it's free dig, it's in a infrastructure-rich part of Australia, believe it or not. Um, the mine manager that I met on site a couple of weeks ago who's doing the test pit, she's a local. She happened to be retiring into Narra Court and then discovered that AR3 were going to build this uh, test pit and she put her hand up and said, I want to work here. Um, so there are a range of skills in South Australia that they can tap in, have already tapped into. So it's not the beauty of this particular process method for ionic clays. If you think of ionic clays as um, the the rare earths are attached to the clay particle on the outside and it adsorbs off in the processing process. So it's like having a glove on your hand, you sprinkle a little bit of weak acid, like a hydrochloric acid, and it'll slip off. And then it goes into solution and then you can process it through your plant and on send, send it to your next stage of processing elsewhere. So it's a very low capex build. So whilst it looks small right now, obviously they've done some recent drilling, that resource update is imminent, it should be coming out in the next few weeks, it should be a material uplift. Um, not only have they drilled a larger area, they've also, uh, the metallurgical test work has identified that their specific gravity was lower than initially anticipated, that allows them to increase their resource. They've also infilled and increased the confidence of the resource. So you'll get a, an increased resource, better confidence from inferred to indicated, all of which leads you to ultimately being able to put out a reserve, which is the mineable asset. So it's going to grow. Um, they also, earlier this year, did regional drilling, um, 20, 30 kilometres away from where the existing deposit is, also hit rare earths of a similar size with similar grades. So this is a regional play. So whilst this initial asset, which was sort of the first place they started, and the only reason they started there was because there were previous drill holes that had already identified that this had good quality, um, good grade rare earth. Uh, so they drilled around that initial um, information. Now there's still this huge, and that's yet to be developed by Australian rare earths. I mean, that's the longer term story here. Whilst it's, and, and because it's a low capex, I, I can't stress enough, 
The fact that it's a low capex build means you can get into production at a much smaller scale than some of the comparable peers. It will produce a lower volume of um, rare earths because of that, but the economics will still work because it's low operating cost. And let's face it, South Australia has mostly renewable energy. Not only will you have low energy prices, you'll have green energy. You'll be able to sell this product we talked about this, the premium, uh, both from an ESG point of view. So from cradle to grave, this rare earth will be able to feed into an environmental ESG aspect that the car manufacturer and the wind turbine manufacturers can tell their customers. Your renewables not only coming from the wind, but the material that we've used to put into that turbine also had a low carbon footprint. And that's a very unique. So when I said the part of the reason we're invested in Australian rare earths was the rare earth commodity itself and it's under supply, but that metric around uh, ESG and how this particular deposit in this particular jurisdiction can really um, magnify the ESG credentials. And I think you were part of the $8.1 million capital raise they did recently. Correct. Yeah. Um, how far along does that money get them in, into... I assume it doesn't get them all the way to DFS, does it? No, no. So that will... Uh, they had seven in the kitty at the end of March. The raise brought them in another eight, so they're now sitting on about $15 million of cash. This is well and truly enough to get them through the next 18 months to two years. Uh, so they will need more funds, as all junior explorers do. We, as you mentioned, we participated in this raise and we're well and truly capable of continuing to support this business uh, over the long term. Um, and we do feel that there are some particularly critical elements of this deposit that make it unique. And so what's its full, got a heap of options and stuff on issue, what's its fully diluted market cap? Uh, I'd have to get is back to you. Is it 130 million shares? I think it is 130. So there's $5 million which could come in through the options, which were just issued as in this raise, Yeah. Uh, if, if it hits a 57 cent. So they Trying are... Trying to go with somewhere around 90 mil in current prices, fully diluted market. Does no, that sound right? No, no, no. Lower than that? Lower than that. Yeah, so if you include the raise, I'd have to come back to yeah, you the full cool. numbers. Well, what's the share price? About 45 It's cents? sitting at about 48 this morning. 48, so 48. But I don't think the shares 30. have been fully issued through... Which is pretty small. Yeah. Let's leave it at that. And if you, if you take <laughs> what are some comparables? If you like, take the 15 million of cash out, it's sitting on an EV of around about 35. Yeah. So that is still an incredibly low value, given the stage this company's at, where they're, pub, you know, they're about to publish an updated resource. After that, getting to your question about catalysts, uh, they'll have the uh, metallurgical, further metallurgical test work. So we haven't actually talked about the test pit that they just um, executed in South Australia. The purpose of that was to get tonne-sized samples throughout the soil profile, and they'll be sending that to the lab, and that will really feed into the um, pilot plant testing of this uh, resource and what the process flow sheet's going to look like. And ultimately, that all feeds into the engineering on what the capital... At, at the, but if we look at a comparable like Ionic... Uh, rare Earths. They published a scoping study last year and I think they gave their um, capital at about 120 Aussie um, and uh, Sprott Capital have recently published a, res uh, a research paper on Australian Rare Earths and they used about 100 million for the capital requirement to get into production and that's what I'm talking about, it being a low capital, imminently. I mean you can say it's got a 40, 48 million market cap today but it is still an achievable capital yeah. for any junior explorer in Australian market to raise to get into production. Rare earths are a little bit different to other commodities like gold and copper. There's no uh, exchange that you can go and hedge your um, bets on and so consequently banks just MIA in this space. Banks don't come to this market. Even with offtakes 
even with off-tax. Because there's no price Foreign banks, really. some foreign banks, consortiums do. Um, export financing agencies have come to this market, but not, not standard banks. I know you couldn't bank on it. Do you think things like that will have to change as the urgency to replace oil is going to heat up, you know, particularly if oil gets north of 200? Do you think these things are going to have to be revisited with a bit more urgency? Because... That's a very good question. I, I, I mean, we've seen the Australian banks completely exit the resources space. The only time they come to play is on a gold developer. Um, lithium can't get bank debt, and they're in production printing wild, millions of dollars a quarter, and they can't get bank debt. So, you know, I mean, once you're in production, you can get a corporate debt facility. But to get that project debt that you need pre-cash flow, yeah. you won't get... Uh, I, yes, logically, you would say the banks would have to... Um, come to the market. However, Australian government has set up a range of funds. The Export Financing Agency have been issuing uh, low-cost loans to resource companies. What's called the Northern Australian Infrastructure Fund have also been supporting critical minerals companies. So Australian government has published a critical minerals strategy, and part of that strategy is the EFA and the NAIF are putting loans. Now, the beauty of those loans are uh, they're long-dated, 10-year amortisation, lower interest rate than commercial banks, and they will allow themselves to sit subordinate to other debt providers. So that allows uh, a company to get a fair proportion of their debt package away, and then they can use the rest through offtake or strategic partners. And you've seen that through um, a number of other entities today, um, whether, I mean, you've even seen the Australian government support Luca recently with their um, rare earth plant that they're planning to build in WA. And that, interestingly, is from those monazite assets uh, deposits that we talked about. So they will have a uranium and thorium byproduct that they have to manage. Um, Linus is bringing their cracking plant back from Malaysia, which will um, double the size of their production. That's also a monazite asset. Um, but she's funding that herself. She's raised money to do that. Doesn't need to come to banks to fund that. I'll let you go in a minute. Just one last question on that related issue. We're seeing... Um there's so much news about the cost of living increases, obviously in Australia, but I was recently in America and it's, you know, inflation's higher there and, and even more of an issue. But so many of the policies, you know, you look in the UK, for instance, they've just announced um, a subsidy for electricity bills for everyone, $400, which, you know, makes sense, but won't reduce the actual cost of electricity. But then I've also implemented a, a super profits windfall tax on oil companies at a very time when you need... The only thing that's going to reduce those cost pressures is the coming down of commodity prices, yet they're disincentivising money going in the ground and you're seeing these policies reenacted in different ways all across the world at a very time when everyone's screaming about cost of living pressures. Does, it, does there feel to be a, a sort of a knowledge gap between policymakers and how these real world commodity prices impact inflation, do you think, or what's going on there? Look, I think we're suffering in this country from a decade of inaction and inability to get alignment between states and federal government policies. Um, we're seeing a gas crisis on the east coast of Australia in terms of the price of gas and we're the largest gas exporter on the planet. You know, how does that work? Um, so you're absolutely seeing that there's been a failure um, of policy, in, particularly for Australia, and you are seeing these other policies being implemented globally. Clearly there's been a short-term shock with the invasion of Ukraine that at some point would look to be alleviated. You are now seeing that Japan is talking about turning on their nuclear reactors. Um, about a decade ago, or just over a decade ago, they had the, the big tsunami which um, damaged all of their nuclear reactors and they've really only turned 
I had about 25, don't quote me on the numbers, but it was about 25 um, nuclear reactors in the country operating. After that, they shut them all down, and then they uh, have only really turned on about three to five. So they're still... My dad, Andy from Sandy, had a big position in extract resources. Ah. And he was waiting to sell yep. just before Fukushima oh. happened. And did he hit Don't the worry, roof, we, all, so. we all suffered through that uranium <laughs> downturn, I can so assure you. So shout out to Andy from Sandy. So Japan is one of the biggest buyers of our export LNG gas. Yeah. Now, if Japan does work on turning on their nuclear plants, that gas then becomes available for a global um, redirect. And that theoretically should start to alleviate some of those global gas pressures that should then alleviate our East Coast gas pressure. How quickly that happens, you know, that's a 12-month, two-year type of time frame. How do we deal with the cost of living pressures today? I think you will see a subsidy. It's my personal opinion, because um, that's the only way. I mean, even the government says we can, we can press this trigger to make these um, exporters return more gas to the market. But those subsidies all around the world is going to increase the price of said commodity, isn't it? Yeah. It's like giving a first home grant to buy a house. Pretty soon the price of the so house is going to So what you're going to see up. is demand destruction. I mean, I've looked into it myself. How do I degasify my house? Um, I've worked out it's probably going to cost me 25 grand to replace all my gas appliances and, and get the person in to do all that work. Um, but it's possible and it's doable. And if gas prices stay high, which ultimately also feeds into electricity prices, uh, you will see demand destruction. And it will be a case of those who can afford it will implement that activity. And then the question is the other part of the market who haven't got the resources or they're renting and they have no control over where their energy comes from, those are the groups will need to be supported through this transition. And that it is a transition and it is going to take a long time. Um, I don't really have the answers. All I know is that um, the renewable energy commodities are in huge undersupply to 2030 and beyond. I just can't see how the world can produce enough of those commodities to meet this need. Um, and the higher prices go for oil and gas, the more the demand for those go up. It's, it's a substitution. And I've been talking to companies in recent weeks and they've said, yeah, no, no, we looked at solar panels two years ago when we were looking at our project build and it just didn't quite make sense. So we shelved it. But now when I'm paying these diesel prices, that solar panel makes sense. So I'm gonna put a solar plant now on my mine site instead of a diesel generator. Beautiful. Well, it's a, uh, as good a place as any to finish. We took, took you on a, a journey from uh, to Uganda, to rare earths, to, to renewable energy and, and back again. So thanks very much for talking us through AR3 and, uh, and sharing the story. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Chris, and it's been great to be on the show. Thanks, Karina. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.